I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. I got gold bullets, motherfucking vampires. I got Scarface on repeat. Scarface on repeat, constant, y'all. I don't know what's going on here. I was just at work for real. Like I'm, I'm just trying to do my job, and I don't know. You could get a rich man if you tried. I don't want a rich man. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Hi, welcome to Projections Podcast Series 4. This season, we're looking at work and money on screen, critiquing modern economics through a psychoanalytic lens. We'll discuss excess, pursuit, competition, livelihood, austerity, property, and post-digital work, culminating in liberation, to touch on the various trials, tribulations, and traumas of accessing the means of survival. First, we pitch them Disney, AT&T, IBM, blue chip stocks exclusively. Companies these people know. Once we sucker them in, we unload the dog shit, the pink sheets, the penny stocks, where we make the money. It's your choice to be a skivvy, isn't it? A skivvy doesn't come to you, you go to it. Come on, let's go to Paris's. I want to rob. And ready, we're recording. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. You're looking very beautiful on Skype today. Oh, thank you so much. So are you. Well, that's because I saw your makeup and put mine on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually made an effort today because I was telling telling you, Sarah, that I bought the Dyson Airwrap. And I'm so excited about that product. It's such a great hair tool. Hi, Dyson. Please sponsor us. Is it actually Dyson? Like, it's like you've got like a vacuum cleaner that curls your hair. <laughs> It's a vacuum cleaner that curls your hair. There you go. That's our advert for Dyson Airwrap. Yeah, yeah, like, now we'd like some money, please. Yes, please sponsor us. Sponsor our podcast and give us royalties. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't believe that we've we've actually reached today's episode on property. Uh, we This series has really flown by, it feels. It feels like it's, it's exactly like lockdown. It feels like it's flown by, but also that we've always lived here. Exactly. it's never been any different we've never known anything different <laughs> serious so today we're tackling um poltergeist and sorry to bother you in that order so films about people buying property living in places um aspiring yeah I don't know I don't know how to like what is the tagline for today's episode it's I like people buying property living in spaces <laughs> people in boxes large boxes small boxes uh coffins um yeah there you go yeah uh, have you ever seen that meme I've never actually seen the episode but it's Marie Kondo um it's like a screenshot from the Marie Kondo TV program I can't remember what it was called yeah um you know 
Japanese lady she comes into your house she's like put everything in clear boxes throw these away like say thank you to the things you throw away you know that lady oh yeah 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 and um, I, I think I posted it on Spilt Milk because it's just uh, like a screenshot of her like in like this lovely little like white outfit and she's saying we are born in hospital boxes and we live in boxes and we get put in little boxes when we die why are you crying <laughs> oh my god but I actually think that like I I don't know I feel like boxes is like the boxes we live in is definitely maybe a theme for these two films definitely yeah for sure like especially I'm thinking especially in sorry to bother you with like just the evolution of the places that he inhabits starting with his uncle's garage (laughs) and really like it's like I also think about the people in their coffins in the graveyard underneath the, the suburban like community in poltergeist the poltergeist yeah that's so true <laughs> yeah um I feel like I don't really ha- I was like searching racking my brain for useful theory when it comes to looking at like homes and property and the the only thing that kind of made sense to me was thinking more about I guess, yeah, I suppose like Freud's definition of the uncanny, like from the, from the German word unheimlich, and heimlich is really like the homely, you know, and the thing that like makes you feel secure and it's like this predictable space where you can let down your guard and you can feel totally relaxed, you know, and the uncanny is the thing that comes and disturbs that, you know, this the thing that is always taking on a dimension of the home but slightly disturbing it slightly like transgressing it so it contains the home to begin with but it somehow warps it or twists it and I feel like that is a good starting point theoretically to approach especially poltergeist Um, the uncanny is such a useful idea to hold in our heads when we look at any home and any home invasion movies, mm-hmm. um, which I think that Poltergeist could arguably be a home invasion movie. And the idea that it sets us up for thinking that this family is being invaded when in fact they're the invaders. You know, That's so interesting because um, whenever I hear the word uncanny, I always think of this very specific feeling I used to get in childhood and I do sometimes still get in adulthood, but less. And it was when I was like, it was when I was with my family, like when we had to go to dinner at someone else's house or we were like out somewhere in winter after the sunset. And it's like the feeling that I used to get when I, we used to go from like someone else's house to like the car or our car to our house. Mm-hmm. And I always used to be like, I was used to be like, like bury my face in my dad's shoulder and be like, I hate the smell of the dark. I hate the smell of the dark. Whoa. And he was always like, what are you talking about? Like, and I think, like, I think that, and whenever I hear the word uncanny, I always think of that feeling. And I guess I thought it was a smell as a child, but it's not a smell. It's like this tot- this sort of un- unsafe yeah. feeling, like in this kind of, th- it was always in like these like threshold spaces in between the car and the house of like if we're at, we're outside and we're not supposed to be outside and it was when especially when the lights are on in the house but you're outside of it it's that feeling but I used to think it was a smell 
Wow, that's interesting. That that definition makes me actually think of liminality, liminal spaces. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I guess these spaces that are trans somehow transitional. It's like they're getting you somewhere, but and that's okay. It's completely natural and part of the process. But the feeling of being there while you're in the liminality feels very weird. Um, is disorienting yeah so liminality is the quality of ambiguity that occurs and like disorientation in the middle of a stage or uh, in the middle of a stage of a rite of passage um, when participants no longer hold their pre-ritual status and have not yet quite begun the transition to the status they will hold when the rite is complete so you're in kind of in a traveling mode I guess um so that's interesting I love that there's so many like different spaces that can feel liminal like airports Mm. oh I hate airports me too I don't think I'm a fan of the liminal to be honest I just like to be at home (laughs) (laughs) really me too me too is that an introvert thing or is it something else I think it's a Scorpio thing yeah yeah Yeah, and I think that's powerful to think about as um, I think liminality especially is useful in Sorry to Bother You for sure because he's like trying to work things out for himself and like achieving different levels of success but it's there's a lot of growing pains and like ideas that he has to confront that are very uncomfortable as he's moving so um yeah, it's a, I, th- I like these two paired together. Okay, I'm the uncanny and the liminal. Yeah. Shall I synopsize Poltergeist for Please. us? Yeah, perfect. Okay, so Poltergeist, 1982. Um, directed, is it Toby Hooper? Yeah. Um, but really apparently directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. As, as so. Um, so a family, parents Steve, in brackets, a real estate developer, uh, and Diane and children Dana, Robbie and Carol Ann, are living a nice life in a suburban community. Supernatural happenings begin occurring, and one night, Carol Ann, the youngest child, is abducted by the household entity through a portal portal in the closet of her bedroom. The family enlists paranormal specialists to help them rescue Carol Ann, a process which uncovers the terrible reason for the hauntings. Perfect, perfect. Mm-hmm. 1982, I, I couldn't believe it was like that year, because I remember being a kid in my like video store when I was like 12 years old going to my local video store and seeing the the art like the cover the VHS cover of that film and being so scared like the the little kid like touching the tv screen and it's such an iconic image it's a great image oh it's amazing yeah I always think of it as a 90s film but it's not at all no it's very very 80s yeah, and it did really well at the box office, like for a horror film. It was a budget of $10 million, which I think at the time, that was like a moderate budget. But it grossed $121 million. I wonder how much of a horror film it was marketed as, because it's yeah. sort of, it's like kind of a family horror film. I bet it didn't have a super high rating. And you, I bet, I'm sure it wasn't like an R rating or no. something that is prohibitive to audiences being able to come and see it. Uh, that's a good point. That is true. Probably the marketing was very clever and they kind of got around certain things and were able to attract a bigger audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe also with the distribution as well, it probably helped. 
Um, but yeah, like, so, I mean, it's, inter- it's, it's, it's a classic story. It, it probably like sits well as a double bill with things like The Shining or these kind of classic stories of um, desecrating the dead by kind of like building homes uh, on top of like ancient burial grounds. Uh, I guess also maybe t- Pet cemetery as well, maybe. Mm. Yeah. What is that anxiety about burial grounds? And, you know, and the living. It's like, it was quite a big theme in the 80s and 90s, I think. It's it's interesting because we don't really respect housing for the majority of people when we're living. But, you know, like, but we, I don't know, we really, we're really anxious about this, like, sacred space for people to go when they're dead. It seems kind of hypocritical. Maybe, is it to do, maybe do you think with the fact that the dead being buried in this place, it's their final resting place? I suppose so. But I think you're absolutely right. I think actually so much of Poltergeist is a really, really useful theoretical framework for studying the insane market, like the housing market of of, of today. I (laughs) think, yeah, sorry. Just because, like, well, first of all, it completely absorbs the your initial point about the hypocrisy of respecting the dead, but meanwhile treating the living as, like, you know, n- inconsequential <laughs> um, as mo- modern-day serfs, you know. Um, but also just this idea of the way that we look at housing um, as a market and the way that the, the value of homes is arbitrarily inflated to benefit the rich mm-hmm. who already have property and they can be landlords and they can just use, um, you know, the tenants uh, rent, you know, rent check every month as their income, their source of income. So it's actually a very, it's kind of like a very undead market. And I say undead very like, uh intentionally because it's like it's a zombie economics you know (laughs) it's like it's like a type of uh market that doesn't create anything new it just exploits something that can never really move forward or advance it's just people it's just the rent the renter is the hamster on a wheel just living paycheck to paycheck like handing over their like you know in london more than a quarter of their wages usually Mm. More than half, I think, these days. Wow, it's just insane. It's insane. Yeah, it's so it's so grossly overpriced. Yeah. And so that just creates the situation where you have a lot of young people not able to save to buy their own property. And frankly, it that's that's kind of like obscene, actually. <laughs> it's it's a zombie economics. It's a, it's an economics that doesn't allow people to move forward in the in a kind of psychoanalytic sense of the eros, like uh, activating the libidinal drive that propels you forward and gives you like movement and energy and dynamism. Rather, you're just stuck in this perpetual like constant repetitive cycle of just handing over your livelihood literally mm. like that's a that's a that's the zombie economics so actually poltergeist is a really useful I, I like i would love to know what zizek thinks of poltergeist oh, i'm sure he's talked about poltergeist at some point but probably if not maybe we can ask him one day 
Um, but I was thinking about that, about that idea you kind of touched on upon about like the intergenerational conflict, um, because this film has a really strange tone that I was trying to understand the reason for, because it, it, it looks like it could be a mistake because it, I think, uh, I think they did this on the evolution of horror, like a couple of years ago. And I remember like that being spoken about quite a lot that it's like a Disney movie, but a horror film. <laughs> and it's got this like very kind of like sentimental score and this very, it looks, it's like very childlike. There's a lot of kind of, it's, it's got kind of a lot of childlike signifiers. It's like, it's for, like, it, it's a family horror movie. And I think that, Actually, the reason for that isn't an accident. I think it's to do with the fact that um, it's to do with the message, maybe unconsciously, maybe they didn't realise because this was made in 1982, but with the ways that the, that generation's choices around real estate and around property have so negatively affected for, you know the next generation and the next generation after that it's basically wow. about parents choices parents like I don't know parents kind of privileged choices or uncon unrealizing choices have put their children in danger and I think that's which is literally happening you know pets, old, older people that own property they expect they expect that they should be able to make a profit on their property but they want their children to be able to buy property that they can afford and it's impossible it's impossible to have it both Poor ways man. so instead of being like okay well maybe I don't need to make a profit on this property they're like no actually maybe they just can never buy property it's better for it's better that my wow. children can't ever have a house like own a house than it is for and it's not that people realize that they're directly affecting their own children but you're affecting somebody else's children yeah. you know it's not a literal generational thing because everyone wants to help their own kids if they can but in trying to in trying to make a profit on your house you're basically like ruining the next generation's chances of ever owning one wow and that is kind of what happens they you know they like the father's choices, his like professional choices, his real estate choices, they they end up really hurting his kids. And I think that's kind of that's sort of what poltergeist is. It's so about funny. like these perfectly nice parents wanting the best for their kids and not realizing that it's their choices that have put them in danger. Oh my gosh. I love that reading so much. That I is think, so true. I think I have that reading in my head because my dad's like consistently telling me how ridiculous it all is. And so, so <laughs> I'm basically quoting him that idea about people wanting to make a profit on their own houses, but wanting their kids to be able to afford houses at the same time. And it doesn't make, doesn't make no, sense. You can't have, have it both ways, you know, in on one side or the other, there has to be like some compromise. Uh, you're absolutely right. Like poltergeist absolutely is, about a couple of parents who they don't have like an evil master plan to harm their children. They, they seem pretty like decent uh, to, uh, and wanting to have like a loving household. Um, but actually it creates like a whoops apocalypse kind of situation where they, where they're the systemic structure of the husband's livelihood, you know, his actual job in terms of working for a company that builds these uh, new builds on in this area and he hasn't even bothered to figure out like what exactly 
what 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 is the nature of this space like before mm. entering it he hasn't taken the time to even research it turns out that the boss knew all along but it wasn't information that he had divulged and this idea of like these little signifiers still being present here and there like the tree next to the kids bedroom and they 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 seem pretty sensitive like they're looking at little cues here and there and they see things and they read uh, ominous symbolism and the area that surrounds them. But the parents seem totally oblivious. Like they're, they're really living in their own fantasy land. And as a result of their kind of carelessness, ultimately, um, they are the ones perpetrating the harm on the children. But they never intended to do it. That is such a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think it very much is about the there's a and there are a lot of signifiers of the hypocrisy of of parents, of the hypocrisy of the you know the generation above us because the what it really struck me my favorite kind of like pre horror signifier is when the bird dies, oh, the yeah. little girl's bird and you know and the mother finds it and she's clearly upset about she's not upset that the bird's dead she's upset that the kids might see the bird dead and get upset. But her solution for this is to try and flush it down the toilet. And in flushing it down the toilet, she gets caught by Carol Ann, like in the act of dropping this bird, of just about to drop this bird down the toilet. So it's kind of, and then something I actually wrote down because I liked it so much is that, Mm. you know, Carol Ann insists on a burial. Yeah. Because, you know, like, unlike her parents, she knows how to respect the dead (laughs) as well as, and, but she also knows how to respect the living because, she yeah. insists that this burial is proper and they give her, she gives her a cigar box and Caroline's like, he doesn't like that smell, put a flower in. Um, and then they put, the, they put the bird in the box and then she puts in some kind of food and she goes for when he's hungry. And then she puts in a photograph of the kids. It says for when he's lonely and then a tissue over the top of him. It says for when it's nighttime. And oh my god! It just kind of—it was like a mini little Maslow's or uh, hierarchy of needs. Like this kid, it's like she's just stating these like really basic things that this dead bird should have, and that everyone should have. And it kind of made me think about oh. the people now being hungry and lonely and yeah. outside at nighttime. And it's all because—it's totally all because of what we've done to property that there, you know, that there are what we've done to property and what we've done to the economy, that there are people who are hungry and lonely and <laughs> outside at night time. Yeah. yeah. It was, it's like, I actually, I had the subtitles on, which is why I noticed it so much, but I had to write it down because I just thought it's so much, that it's so much kind of, there's so much there about sort of basic needs. Wow. That is so beautiful. It's so true. It was so cute, her little ritual. And the fact that she she wanted her bird's final resting place to be a comforting space. And also the fact, just following on from what you just said, it makes perfect sense because when they decide to dig out the hole for the swimming pool, when the bulldozer comes in and starts like pulling out the, the soil... Is it a bulldozer? I never know what any tools are called or any like. Sure, it's a bulldozer. <laughs> whatever, whatever that is, the tractor. Those things are multi-purpose. They've really got like it's like when you have like a food mixer and they've got those little blades that do different things. It'll be like that. <laughs> I have no idea what any of these things are called, but when we see like the process of digging out the hole, the per the poor bird box 
just gets like dumped. Like yeah. it just, they just go over the poor burial ground of the bird. And that is so in keeping with the larger pattern of the film of the final resting place of these other people being disturbed for these very selfish kind of unthinking reasons, you mm -hmm. know? And, and that, and that, you know, the, it is a kind of, um, general transgression of the circle of life as well because it's not just the past that is being disturbed but also as you say the future these the, these poor children you know um i guess they're gen xers or something um and the parents are definitely boomers yeah, definitely <laughs> i mean i think that's kind of the unconscious thing about um poltergeist because i think I think the thing, like the conscious thing, the thing that the director's intended is it's supposed to be about like American colonialism. Yeah. Isn't it that idea of like, do, like, you know, sort of happening on something unaware and just assuming that no one else lives there or just assuming that no one else owns it or assuming, you know, that, that no one else matters as much as you do is this. And that's why it kind of starts with like the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, and yeah. That, you know, that all this kind of. But I think. But I think the generational thing is probably something that isn't wasn't necessarily present in Poltergeist when it first came out. I think that's just some that's just sort of like a happy accident. Wow. That you know that it's it's not just about like America and the past generations of people who have lived in on America in America. It's also about like this whole generation, this whole like you know it's, yeah this whole generation and the people that aren't even born yet. Oh, that is so true. Yeah, like the kind of colonial mentality of exceptionalism, like mm -hmm. feeling like you're entitled to do whatever you want with this land. And there being a kind of like Wild West economics to your logic about how you build property. You just, you just like, you just rock up and wherever you decide is that's, that belongs to you. You're just no, there's no like, no one's taking pause to think, well, who was here before me? Like, mm -hmm. what about, what about the Native Americans, you know? Um, and this whole attitude is so toxic and this is why it, com it continues to, um, yeah, I suppose cause trauma. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think when they were making the film, probably the focus was, uh, or maybe, you know, uh, the general theme probably related more to the native issue. Um, but it's probably a, te a testimony to how actually well made the film is that the robust representation of trauma is also interpretable today, um, so many years later, nearly 40 years later, as a commentary on the housing market of today in, t mm -hmm. in 2020. And I think that's a really good, uh, yeah, that's a really good observation. Oh my gosh, I, I'm really looking at it differently since you said that. That's really interesting. It also kind of struck me that the um, the act of like kidnapping the youngest child is like kind of like a revolutionary act. You know, like um, mm. like it's like you know it's something that you you'd think like of like by Bader Meinhof doing. You know, like like we'll take your like this kind of thing that I in my like most Marxist moments think of doing. It's just like I'm just gonna go ahead and like take the children of rich people until this is all sorted out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's it is it is a kind of act of great defiance, isn't it? Like, um, and and she's so cute as well. Like Carol Ann, I really like her. She's she kind of at first reminded me of of the children in in uh, the village of the dam. She is like one of those village of the dam children. She's so cute. Apparently, they <laughs> they considered Drew Barrymore, but Drew Barrymore wasn't cute enough. 
Oh. She wasn't angelic enough to be oh. to be the little girl, so she's very specifically like really angelic. Oh my gosh, her little eyes! I feel like her her ritual with her bird burial is very like it gives me like aesthetics of Zodiac Film Club big time. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> it's very cute. It's very like precise. I was actually just thinking I'd like to do some screenshots of that and post them. You so, need to do it. Yeah, yeah it's very Zodiac. Um, oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And the thing is, like, I only watched this film as an adult. Like, I, all the times I wanted to rent it as a kid, I was actually too scared because of the, like, cover image. And I think I probably ended up projecting more horror towards yeah. it than it actually had. I definitely had. did as well. I didn't realize that it wasn't scary. Because it's not really. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, and but and also you watched way scarier stuff as a kid I know I know that's the thing like I watched pieces yeah <laughs> like I know I think I just let my imagination run wild because of the dominant image and mm. actually yeah it was more accessible than I thought um yeah for sure it it also makes me so nostalgic for those old days like looking at the horror section in the video store and seeing things like that you know such a classic and it it actually reminded me a little bit of Peter Jackson's film Brain Dead Oh really Yeah yeah like cuz Brain Dead is a is a zombie movie but I can't watch Brain Dead because I think that I would I get. I don't think I could take how disgusting it is. Because oh, from what I've heard, I can't. I'm not very good with the disgusting. Like it's really easy to make me throw up. Mm-hmm. So I have to be really careful about what I watch in terms of the, in terms of not gore, but just in terms of. I don't know what you. What, there isn't a word for it really, but disgustingness. It's like gross out. Gross like, out. Yeah, I can't yeah. do gross out. But yeah, like just in terms of the over the top kind of special effects, like the makeup, mm-hmm. um, it really made it just really made me think of Brain Dead. But I I actually prefer Brain Dead just because it has um, at the at the center of it is a, a very weird uh, Oedipal complex. <laughs> I was actually I was actually thinking that like even just that right at the beginning when it kind of starts kicking off and the boy gets taken like taken by the tree outside and yeah. then they like rescue him and they're and then they're like looking for Carol Ann and I was like yes Carol Ann is missing but someone get that kid in the shower because <laughs> he's like covered in just like brown goop and I yeah. was like he's making me feel sick please just put him in the shower he's just disgusting it's not like like someone at least would have just handed him a towel to dry off his face it's not reasonable that he's like doing the rest of this scene it with like all of this goof on his face it's disgusting <laughs> so yeah even even like the the minimal gross out in poltergeist was like a little bit too much of me, much for me I was I was panic. I was starting to panic if that scene had yeah. gone longer, I wouldn't be able to deal with it oh my gosh that's so funny yeah I know what you mean there were little bits that I was like I know I shouldn't be concentrating on this detail, but it's like really annoying me. There was one detail also that I noticed that had nothing to do with the plot, but I was like, damn it, the continuity is off because towards the end, the mother has, for some reason, like when they decided to move out of the house, you see the mother is standing there and she has these like really noticeable highlights. Like, (laughs) did you notice that? Like really, really stark, like streaks, like platinum blonde streaks in her hair on the sides of her temples 
And I'm like, okay, in the middle of, of all this drama, like your house is being invaded by poltergeists and you've gotten had your hair highlighted, okay? Maybe they're like fear streaks. You know how people <laughs> say that their hair turns turns white when they're really scared. Okay, that would have made sense if in the next scene she still had them, but like... <laughs> Maybe she was like, oh God, these fear streaks, I better quickly dye them out. But that doesn't make sense because the person that would dye out their fear streaks is the person that would dry off their son's like muddy face. So, so yeah, you're right. Like, it really annoyed me. I'm like, what happens? In, like, first of all, why do you have streaks? And then later she's lying in her bed. That It was the bit where she started climbing the walls and then suddenly she didn't have the streaks. And I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> I was I was a bit of a continuity police with, with Poltergeist. But apart from that, it was a really enjoyable film. Should we move to Sorry to Bother You? Yes, perfect. Okay, um, I'm going to synopsize. Uh, is it 2018, Sorry to Bother You? I think it is. It is, yes, it is. Um, so Cassius Green is a young man living in his uncle's garage with his girlfriend, an artist, activist, and sign twirler named Detroit. Uh, that, was very, that was very English saying <laughs> of Detroit. Um, Detroit. Attempting to access the means of survival, he uses fake references to obtain a minimum wage with commission job as a telemarketer. Initially struggling, Cassius excels at the job after being taught to use his white voice. While Mm. Cassius' co-workers form a union to better their positions at the company, Cassius is torn between solidarity and using his talent to succeed alone. While his financial situation improves as he crosses the picket line, his personal life suffers and then things get really weird. Excellent. Ah, oh, perfect. Because this is like this is one of those films where quite a lot happens, and it's also <laughs> like a lot happens, but it's also there are so many ways to read it. I think. Yeah. And like because we could have used it for sort of post digital work and that idea of kind of zero hour contracts and precariousness, mm. um, but it just kind of we really wanted to fit it in somewhere, and it definitely it felt like we felt like it definitely had this kind of I feel like. Its theme of property is a little bit like the theme of. Mm. Um, do you remember the Cable Guy, that Jim Carrey film? Oh, yeah. You know, there's like that running theme of about oh, wow. the, uh, the guy on death row, or like the murder trial. Yeah. Um, like running through it, and the whole time you're like, "How is this going to factor in? How is this going to factor in? How is this going to factor in?" But it's like always there in the background. I feel that that's what mm. like living, like accommodation and property, and all of that kind of stuff is to this film. It's like this kind of this like low-level threat that runs through and lets you know that things are like Mm -hmm. that there's always this anxiety and I guess that's kind of what renting is yes oh wow that's really well put yeah like constantly being kept on your toes but in the worst dreadful way like you're constantly um you can never really just relax or that your landlord will sell it to become like luxury, luxury flats and you'll have to move again it's that idea of that you're, I guess, like renting is kind of a liminal space. It is. Um, you're always, you know, you're always, it's, it only lasts for a year. And then like, uh, yeah, either you have to um, pay more or you have to renegotiate something or you have to think about finding somewhere new. And it's so it's kind of this like chore that's never over. It never, there's no stabilization. So you're always in this kind of uncomfortable space. There's no resolution. There's no resolution. It, yeah. It just continues. Yeah. It just continues and you're always on that kind of like hamster wheel, um, unable to really kind of stop and take stock of the situation. 
uh, and before you know it, you're just rent. You, you know, pe people are just renting their lives away. I'm thinking of like places like Germany, like in Berlin. There's a lot of rent control, and the mm -hmm. rent prices are so low. And the idea of young people like be feeling like they're driven to buy property, or just j people in general, like fetishize fetishizing property ownership, it just doesn't exist because it's just it it you know, rent is affordable, and it's like you're able to kind of fit it into your life in a healthy way, in a non-toxic way. And yeah, it's just a diff it's just a totally different attitude to property that dominates that economy and it's so much healthier. Um, and it kind of like removes that constant anxiety and fear attached to rent and and payment of those huge sums every month um, that leave people unable to like invest in themselves, invest in their future. Um, I'm thinking of also like New York, like in the 70s and 80s, it was, mm -hmm. there was rent control. Um, there was rent control here until about the 50s, I think. I think wow. Like maybe 60s. Yeah, I think that there was rent control for a while, and then, and then once that, once that kind of they destabilized the rents, that's when prices started creeping up. So mm -hmm. that's like I guess when like our grandparents bought houses, and then it just kind of incrementally what got worse and worse. And it's never, they've never been controlled again. The neoliberal doctrine elevating renting um, habits for profit um, also, of course, runs in poltergeist because we know that the, the, if you remember in one of the earlier scenes, the dad is reading about Ronald Reagan, mm. one of the proponents of neoliberalism. So it's kind of like interesting. Um, I mean, in Sorry to Bother You, we have a guy, he starts off, he's, He's living in his, it's his uncle, isn't it? He's living yeah. in his uncle's garage. Um, and his his girlfriend's an artist. And it, it's really interesting. Like he said to her, I want a purpose. I, you know, I want, I want to feel like I'm doing something with my life. You have your art. And it's true. Like she's, she's found her calling. Like she knows what she's good at. And she really is good. Like I mm -hmm. love her earrings. <laughs> um, she's a cool character in the movie. And you can you can tell that she doesn't like struggle with that. Like she knows she knows her work. She knows in who relation, she is. She knows who she is in relation mm. to her like professional life. Like there's no struggle there, and and he hasn't got that. And when he's he's like I just want to find something I'm good at. And um, there's a lot of pressure. He finally goes and works starts working in telemarketing. Um, I did work in a telemarketing agency very, very briefly as a temp job when I was like between cities at one point. And I just remember thinking how like, I felt like it was a hellscape because like, you know, like in the movie where you, the, the motto of the company is on the wall, like, what does it stick to the script? Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but feel that the script is neoliberalism. The script, the discourse is you know, these rules that we've put down that we've established and you have to just follow that. You cannot deviate because if you do, then you'll fail. And this is constant fear and threat that is put out there for people. And like, that's the thing that is used to control them, like divide and conquer them ultimately. But his girlfriend, she's so free of that, <laughs> you know, like, and I like that the movie is making a statement about art having the capacity to 
find a different, like a new way, a, a third mm-hmm. way, a different solution, it's quite hopeful. Yeah, I think it definitely is. And it is interesting. It kind of, um, it sort of like uh, echoes bullshit jobs in that yeah. idea that if it was all structured correctly, people, like a lot of people wouldn't actually need to work, but like that we actually do need to work for ourselves, that we need to, that like, because uh, the thing is, he was sort of the hardest, this is one of the hardest uh, like synopsis I've had to write because often like a character is defined by what they're interested in and what they're good at and what you know what they do and this is the first kind of character I've had that doesn't do anything um and that's like where he's uncomfortable and where he's suffering is that he's not you know I was like Cassius Green is and then I I you know I had to just say it's a is a man it's like a young man because he doesn't have yeah like you said he doesn't have the thing that he's passionate about um and yeah, I think that's, it's such an interesting film because it says so much about, like, it just, it says so, so, so much about the, like, it's, I think there are a lot of films that will criticise the system without looking at the way that we participate in it and the reasons, the reasons that we do participate in it. Boots Riley says this in interviews, that he says that you're a better, like, you're a better Marxist or you're a better activist if you can understand the emotional reasons why people are doing what they're doing. Mm. And I think that's really the truth about this film is that you can totally understand that it's not just about accessing means of survival. It's not just about finding mm. a home. It's not just about staying out of, it's not just about staying out of trouble, but it's about having some kind of like happiness or peace of mind or self-respect generated from what you do. And that's why it's so hard for us to just be, to just mm. be activists or to just be Marxists or to just, yeah. and that's that's his struggle that he has that he's finally found this identity, but his identity is something damaging, and that the only thing he's ever been good at is something that is harming other pe- other people, but yeah. he doesn't want to get rid of it because he he wants to be he wants to be like a better person he wants to be a better person he feels like he's a better person to have this skill this like skill of selling things to other people selling actually slaves is what he's doing um and yeah I think it's like a really nice empathetic look at why it's like why it's so hard for us to be to be to have solidarity and to sort of join each other because it's not because of the kind of the anxiety of being thought of as just like one one of the masses as opposed to your own interesting unique self and I think that's kind of it hits so hard for him to be like to be with uh Detroit because she's got like both of those things kind of sorted she's like on the picket line she joins the same company and she joins the union but she's also got all of her stuff that she's interested in whereas he really has to choose between being like interesting and being good wow and like what would you choose if you had if it was interesting or good I would sure I would choose interesting me too (laughs) that is such a good way of putting it it's so true he feels like he's put in the place of that ultimatum having to choose whereas his girlfriend doesn't like she's she can easily like compartmentalize working at this place doing the right thing while she's there but also having a separate identity separate 
project that she's working on for herself, her, her vision, her passion project. And those two can coexist like, and, but he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that purpose. He doesn't have that sense of like the thing that brings meaning to his life. He's just stuck in having to gain validation for his identity from the people who are authority figures in the workplace. And the fact that also like there's little signifiers throughout this building as well that make me think that it's not just like a job, it's a wider political thing, like the gold elevator, you know, or the gold lift. Like it's very Trumpian. Yeah, that's true actually. You know, like it's very Trumpian. You know? And how like people living in a society like look, you know, on some level the office of the president or our leader, um, whether we like it or not, will hold some kind of like psychological influence over us. Like just in, just even purely in Oedipal terms, you know, our parents or the people who are allegedly like our kind of superiors on some hierarchy, whatever. Um, if they, if they are morally corrupt, if they if they if they have like they don't have the basic characteristics that respect our dignity, then it becomes like a really tyrannical relationship where we are having to like compromise aspects of our identity and personhood and agency in order to appeal to their whatever benevolent perception of us. And it becomes like a really unhealthy, toxic relationship where he's having to like please these managers and bosses who are basically telling him to erase like characteristics of his identity and like st literally talk like this kind of parodied, <laughs> you know, um, version of a white person. Yeah. And um, that's interesting because they say specifically in the film that it's not actually how a white person speaks, it's it. how a white person would want to speak or right. want to sound. So it's like, it's this idea of just this, it's actually not a white voice, it's just like an aspirational voice. That's it. Which I think is such an interesting an interesting take, um, because it's it implies that you, um, it implies that it's not about joining an elite. It's about pretending that you have superiority over an elite, and that's how you appeal to that's how you appeal to an elite, is that is by being better or by being more powerful. And I think it's just so intelligent. It's as a so film. intelligent. Yeah, you're right. Like take co-opting the characteristics of not necessarily a white person it's not whiteness it's the attitude of a white person who believes they have it all mm -hmm. and they've achieved the highest pinnacle of, of success and they can command the respect wherever they go so it's purely as you say aspirational um it's not suggesting that every white person even has attain this because as we know there's people living in poverty from every race it's more the idea of I guess like yeah I suppose just a sense of entitlement it's almost like a kind of Patrick Bateman type of person who is so privileged and they just expect to get whatever they want and if you have this attitude and you convey that to your caller while you're making the sale then you're somehow hypnotizing them into like buying your dog shit, whatever it is you're selling, because they want a piece of that 
aspiration as well. So they just buy into the dream. It's a bit like the Wolf of Wall Street, how they were, those people were able to like peddle, uh, you know, horrible stocks and stuff. So yeah, you're right. It's kind of, it's more about selling an illusion, a total, just a discourse. And that's what that's why they keep saying stick to the script it's 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 the script is the discourse it's the ideology um i was particularly like mesmerized by some of the sequences in the film where we see him finding success as he's climbing up the corporate ladder and his place like his living space changes so he's now we we know that he's moving out of the garage and he's bought or renting this like much more glamorous apartment. He's got nicer decor and he's surrounded by like really plush, comfortable furniture, much more like sophisticated. That bit reminded me a lot of uh, Michel Gondry, you know, like- Yeah, it was, it it really is. (laughs) Very like absurdist. Um, Actually, I think there was a very intentional reference to Gondry because if you recall, when he goes, into his boss, his like ultimate, his top boss's office at that party. And he gets shown like the infomercial about the uh, Equisapiens. That little film, it said, was directed by Michel Dongri. Yes. <laughs> Which really made me laugh. Like I did not notice that the first time when I saw it in the cinema and I noticed it the second time when I was prepping for this and I'm like oh my god that is so funny. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of like unhomely um, because I think that Poltergeist really does a good job of this like very like nice nurturing family space that sort of becomes evil or like has it gets taken over by this evil presence whether it's the Poltergeist or the family is kind of up for debate but I think this being made in 2018 I feel like that idea of home has really just been totally eradicated from the whole film and I was thinking I just feel like watching this film it's kind of like having this kind of like cold evil bird's eye view over society and that you can just like see all of these spaces that everyone's in and that none of them are like the only moment where it feels like someone's home is the sort of opening moment in his garage where it's just them in bed yeah and you can't like really see to the sides you just like see this couple in bed and they're like at home with each other but the rest mm-hmm. of the time, it's all there's no like safety. It all just kind of gets stripped away, and it is. And in, in his apartment, his like his, his sort of success apartment, there's no like curtains and there's no. Like, it's like beating like sun coming down, and it's not like a safe, nice space. It's like security or like financial success hasn't bought him safety, which mm-hmm. I suppose is maybe just like a comment on like the black experience in America. Yeah black people like being successful and like moving to the suburbs and then just like being stopped by police like yeah. three times a week for going into their own homes so I mean I guess obviously this film is very much about like the African-American experience as well as sure. anything else but there's there is and it kind of also the the office spaces are like the whole film is about like the different kinds of space that you're allowed as like a human being of your status so like mm. all of the people downstairs have these cubicles and then these office spaces are just like these weird like empty glass windowed rooms with like oh, yeah. furniture and they're like it's sort of like and I don't know I've always thought that gradually with like 
the we work and all that kind of thing you've got like this kind of this sort of like faux home like idea of like offices that you can be in 24 hours and they have like coffee and beer and you can sort of you you can live there but it doesn't feel it just feels weird all mm-hmm. the time have you ever been in a we work after nine o'clock never it's, it's totally it's a really strange place liminal liminal yeah and I feel like all the spaces are and of course then there's this like there's this perpetual ad like advertising for worry free which is this what you can do if you just if you get to the bottom rung which is that you can give up all of your rights and just like move into these like work camps where you get a bunk bed and you get food but you don't have anything else so I feel like it's it's yeah the kind of landscape of um sorry to bother you is that like yeah that home is just never an option no Um, not not for these people like even if even like even with your like aspirational voice and your talent at selling that you're always that you're never comfortable and I guess that's kind of like that's oh the feeling God. of anxiety that the film gives me that it just it, it's always it's like I suppose that the only home is other people and I think that's really that's really what this especially like millennials I think which yeah. I guess he would kind of fit into he's like an old yeah. millennial I think mm-hmm. um, is that they can't they can't count on space that all space is kind of treacherous and all space yeah. is like made to make you feel like you can't settle in it whether that's workspace which is like all hot desking and you know there's no no one's got like pictures of that like he does put a picture up doesn't he puts, like, oh yeah up in his cubicle and it always changes yeah yeah at at the beginning like the person in the photo is like giving a thumbs up but then when he gets promoted and he's in his little like glass office the person in the photo is giving a thumbs down (laughs) that's true yeah but that's it like that's the only like signifier of who he is everything else is just like really generic office furniture and you never learn who that person is in the photo do you no it's just a mystery. It's also the fact that emission of details like that also make us wonder about this character and his upbringing. And like, we know that he has a good work ethic. It's just that he's caught up in a really morally, de- you know, defunct <laughs> atmosphere, just like we all are, you know, mm-hmm. um, where things are commodified and work, the value of work is reduced so much to the point that, you know, even those loyal workers who are willing to even live on the premises where they work and not have the dignity of their own space and, like, just live in this really chaotic way, even they are not sacred. They can easily just be replaced by, like, equisapiens. <laughs> One thing I was also th- wondering about is how much do you think it's a commentary on like Amazon as well? Like I, what is it called? Worry free. Mm-hmm. I feel like Amazon is on the verge of announcing that like, it's going to create a camp for its workers. Like- oh, definitely. I feel like, I mean, it's not unheard of. Like Ikea used to have um, villages. Okay. Actually lots of companies used to have villages. I okay. mean, like these were like houses for the families that worked there. But still, it's like ethically, it sounds kind of good at first, but it's like ethically dubious when your living space is connected so much to your working life. And if one thing like, you know, that like it shouldn't 
like ethically those two things shouldn't be interconnected quite in the same way that they are um but yeah totally amazon would be the ones the ones to do it and it would be horrible yeah like i wouldn't at this point i wouldn't even be surprised like especially during this pandemic amazon's profits have like skyrocketed and they've made untold fortunes of course like workers are not seeing any of that um it's mainly like just Jeff Bezos and his like probably very small circle of of of, of managers, but I at this point I would not even be surprised if he announced that he was like going to 3D print workers mm. and like just have people, you know, sack thousands of workers and I mean because the thing is like I I think that like the Amazon model just like anything else. If, if something works, it should just be nationalized. Like, that's the thing that people sometimes I, I have this uh, argument with when people say like, oh, but, you know, um, y- you complain about it, the econo- modern economics, but you wouldn't want to give up like your cell phone or you wouldn't want to give up your delivery service or whatever it is. Like they kind of come up with all these like examples of, cap- ca- you know, signifiers of capitalism. But the thing about like socialized economics, or at least just the mixed economics, it's not that you give up those things that you enjoy. It's not. It's not. It's not even about what gets made. It's about who gets paid. Mm. You know, like you could still have Amazon, but it's nationalized, just like the NHS. Um, you can have property. You can have like, um, build. You know, building new houses. Uh, and even you can even have like different tiers of property. It's not about that. It's just that it's it gets nationalized and distributed in a fair way, not like people, you know, faceless and nameless oligarchs buying entire blocks of flats wholesale and living off of the, the you know, whatever the rent or or the value of the of those properties. And they don't even live in the country. Like <laughs> uh, speaking of Amazon, have you noticed? how difficult it is to watch films on anything else oh yes I have it's awful it's really worrying it's been I've really noticed it during like during the lockdown I've noticed it get worse and worse and worse but it used to be that if you googled a film that you had I mean I that like granted they're all kind of they're all like tech giants but for a while you had like appear in the search engine you'd you'd get you can watch it on Amazon you can watch it on Google you can watch it on YouTube you can watch it on iTunes I've looked for a lot of films recently that are only available on Amazon they've got a monopoly oh my god and as someone who who is doesn't use Amazon it's actually getting quite hard to find places to watch films it's like I, I don't know I just really want to flag this now because it's a problem and I'm wondering if that they're buying exclusive licenses I think they are and because they're the they only are. people that can afford to do that yeah and that's like so you can't even you can't like be a film fan and <laughs> or like you can't yeah you can't like watch films and conscientiously object to Amazon like you have yeah. to, you have to break the picket line in order to to like watch what you want to watch which is so crazy it is it's so unfair especially now that cinemas are still closed and like realistically we don't know when we can go back to like the cinema experience pre-pandemic I know that some cinemas will start to open soon but 
like we have to wait and see how that business model is going to shake out with like whether it's even feasible you know whether we might experience a second wave we don't know it's all a question mark so at the moment we can't rely on the cinema going experience we are 100% having to rely on streaming and you are right like they have they have just gone to town like they have accumulated and hoarded so many licenses and like rights and and I, I also find the media player on Amazon really annoying like sometimes the it's not well synced and the closed captioning is not very good mm-hmm. and it's like a little bit delayed so I'm not a fan of that but more importantly I'm not a fan of their business model and their practice like it is really objectionable and it's painting people into a corner where they don't have a choice but to you know consume from from their service because they've they've hoarded everything everything yeah. you know it's a monopoly like it should be illegal you can't you shouldn't be able to do that but then i guess like this is what puts us in the cassius green position of yeah. like are we going to find another way or are we going to give in because this is a situation where our consumption directly affects someone else like every time we like click you know one click buy it just makes it okay for like workers to be like pressured into not taking toilet breaks so that they can fulfill their targets in the warehouse it's all related it's all totally it's all like it's like this is our chance to decide whether we want to be interesting or good like whether we want to have like watched whether we want to watch that film that everyone's talking about or find like so you know or find some other way to to find it or to wait for it or to just like conscientiously object until it's available somewhere else well said yeah this is it's putting the ball straight in our court and it's up to us to decide like it is really ironic like one of the films that we're going to be talking about in this series sorry we missed you i think is exclusively like handled by amazon which is so ironic yeah because it's about the terrible working conditions of amazon delivery drivers yeah i mean he could not make that up you yeah, know it's totally ridiculous a ken loach film like yeah it's really crazy mm-hmm. um, um well so i mean what well, we'd our recommendations are watch sorry to bother you get inspired quit amazon yeah <laughs> like quit amazon take your card details off there eradicate your wish list like don't give them any power in your life to draw you back in and with the money you save from your amazon prime throw us a donation oh um, yes great great segue and great idea yeah you know like just even like a percentage of all your savings uh would mean that we can produce more content for you for your listening pleasure i think we've had a new donation recently again we have had a new donation uh recently i'm just searching for it thank you tom fowler for your donation oh, yes thank you so much tom yeah thank you very much i think this is actually tom's second donation oh so that's lovely that's, another that's very kind donator so that's very very nice that you're coming back thank you so much we really appreciate it um and as ever please tell your friends about us uh follow us on social media rate and review um on the tech giants um and just keep in touch we love hearing from you yeah we just we, yeah we love hearing your interpretations and your film recommendations too um, so we'll be back next week for post-digital work. Yeah. Looking Bye. forward to it. Bye. <laughs> Boy, nothing in life is free.
Responsibilities. So I'm looking for a man who's got some money. 